0: Welcome to Postcolonial Space, I'm Masood Raja and this is one of my slightly political conversations. It's my birthday today so I was thinking about the world and how we all live in it and what we are going through as a global community through probably the most dangerous and widespread pandemic and within that the role that politics plays in our lives. I was especially thinking about the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol and the claims, the narratives that mobilized those group of people who attacked the U.S. political system. Obviously, there is no doubt about that. And I had broached these issues in one of my books that I had published in 2016 called The Talibanization of America, but as most academics' books go, no one actually read it. But that event, as it unfolded, made me think about, you know, the power of narratives and how they mobilize people. If you have a good story that constitutes your identity, you go and do different things in the world. And if you have a narrative of exclusion, of hate, of distrust, then of course you go and perform different kinds of actions in the world. And this is not just pertinent to the insurrectionists. It applies to the Taliban, to ISIS, and everyone else who goes and does terrible things in the world. But since I live in America, and I claim to have some degree of understanding of how consciousness works, how things work, I thought I should share some of my thoughts about these people, these extreme right-wing Americans who attack the U.S. Capitol, who believe in certain narratives but that those narratives have their own inherent inconsistencies. Here are these people who claim to be individualistic, autonomous beings. They don't want the government to tell them what to do. They are parts of militias that are always on the watch against the federal overreach. These are the people, right? But these were the same people who marched on the Capitol on the instructions of one man, Donald Trump. They are also the people who were telling each other, hey, Trump is on the phone. He has just tweeted. We should go back. He's our commander in chief. So there is no doubt in my mind that most of these people thought that Donald Trump was a leading figure. And it's even worse than that. These people absolutely believe in what Donald Trump tells them. There is nothing wrong in believing in a leader or a person. But when those who claim to be individualistic, autonomous, and freedom fighters surrender their will and their critical consciousness to one person, then their own narrative of self, individual and collective, is faulty. Because how can you be individualistic and free and still be beholden to someone at the top who gives you the orders or gives you the instructions for whom you're fighting. But this malaise, this sickness, is not just part of the consciousness of these people, right? It has now the reigning ideology of the second largest political party in the United States. There are senators elected representatives right now who are more worried about displaying and performing their loyalty to Donald Trump than to the very principles upon which the politics of their party is based. Now, pragmatically, of course, I understand it because Donald Trump claims loyalties of at least 75 million people who voted for him, and they are the people these reps and these senators would go back to to get their votes for. But does that mean that these people in the Senate, in the House of Representatives, that they only care about their next election? Because they lead us to believe that they stand for certain principles. Now, when you stand for certain principles, the idea behind it is that if those principles come to crisis... If someone brings those principles to crisis, what you believe in, you don't then go and render your allegiance to that someone. That would be the ultimate act of cowardice. The principled stand, ideologically or practically, would be to say, you have the power to break me. You have the power to make sure that I don't win the next election, but this is what I stand for as a conservative. And then you take a stand, right? That is an act of courage, right? That's bravery. So technically, you know, all these people like Ted Cruz and others who have now just turned around and surrendered their wills to Donald Trump and they claim to be brave and they claim to be tough have actually surrendered any principle that they stood on. Now, I have no problem about people's politics. You know, people believe in what they believe in for very complex reasons. What I have a problem with is when one political party already has a vision of the world and of America, which is based in exclusions, which is based in fear, which is based in keeping certain people out and privileging certain people within and then majority of that group has now also made it conditional that in order to be part of the GOP, you also must surrender your will to Donald Trump and not criticize him, not hold him accountable. That doesn't make a viable political party or a principled political party. And that's what I was thinking about today on my birthday, I mean because these are the kind of things we think about. And people are trying to answer these questions. There are articles every day, there are news stories every day, but I think one thing that is missing from the popular coverage of this phenomena is a deeper understanding of how identities are formed. Right? And for that, I think we academics can fill that gap. Because if we understand, like people like Eric Erickson or Mark Parker and others have explained that most of the times what we believe in, what we perform, the identity in the world is based in the narratives that we have internalized. That is what they call the master signifiers that we believe in, what constitutes a man, what constitutes patriotic the self-serving scripts, the narratives that stabilize our identity. What is American, right? What is constitutional authority or what is my role as an individual? So all of these people who were basically attacking their own government have a certain specific set of narratives that they tell each other, that get repeated, that they believe in. And then that is what articulates that identity. Now, we are never going to change their minds by giving them facts or by telling them a different story because they already have dismissed the facts. They already don't want to hear you out. The only way we will convince them to stop and think about it is if we can, in one way or the other, appeal to their empathy empathy for others, empathy for those who are different, and I think that is where it is possible to reach out to any one of those who professes at least some form of Christian faith, because no matter how you get detached from the original message of the scriptures or life of Jesus Christ, at least knowing that caring for others and to others is something that can be called Christ-like, right? And I think that's where the religious leaders can play a huge role, because unless we shift those narratives, those schemas that construct that consciousness, no amount of lecturing or arguments is going to help in this. And I've learned this through the hard way. I deal with a lot of people with very hardened political beliefs and sometimes when I have my opinions which are contrary to theirs, I know immediately how they will respond. So there are two ways in which I can approach a confrontational situation like that. One is to have a hard stance and say, I'm a leftist, this is what I do, and that never really works because those people are trying to defend their own identities. So the moment you give those contrary views, they are going to block you out. And
1: what I've noticed
0: is that what works the best is if you yourself come across as provisional, as having the opinions but not necessarily opinions etched in stone, but also if you approach a person who has completely different points of view from you with a certain degree of empathy, you know, with a certain degree of humility, And maybe then we can at least start to have a conversation with people who may be completely opposed to us, people who probably also hate us. I know it's, you know, kind of a bit out there. How do you go and talk to a person who absolutely hates you? I mean, you don't even have to talk to these people, but if they've already dehumanized us, do we then act less than human? Or do we prove through our actions, through our words, that we're equally as human, right? And we're generous, and we're kind, and we accept differences. But, you know, if they attack us, if they attack our way of life, our belief system, we're not going to crumble and lie down. We will take our stand. We will take our strand peacefully, but we will take it together And then we will mount a critique and keep constantly mounting a critique. These are some of the things that, you know, I was thinking about today. I know these are not practical ideas, but I see these constituencies here in America where I live, and in Pakistan where I come from, where I grew up, which is also a part of my heritage and part of my identity that there, too, those fringe groups who have the pulpit or who have a few people on their side try to dictate the terms, try to tell others how to live their lives. But by and large, what stops them is because a larger majority either doesn't acquiesce to their power or continues to support a way of life which is more enabling which is more encouraging, which is more inclusive. And I think that is what we here need to do, is stay in touch with each other, support people who are like-minded, but remain open to having a conversation with those who may be opposed to us, but at least want to ask us about our views. Those who are not talking, those whose minds are already made up, we probably cannot reach them, but we should not let them define the conversation. And that way, maybe the two sides will be able to develop a sort of a workable middle where I can be liberal, you can be conservative, but at least we can share certain ideas about humanity, about how to live in this world, about how to care about this planet, how to care about the poor, the weak, the infirm, the elderly, right? And maybe those spaces and those ideas can enable us to still have a conversation. Because commonality, as my friend Mark Brocker mentions in one of his articles, is essential to find some common element between us and even those we absolutely oppose is absolutely essential because it is that spot, that space where we share something in common is where we can have an opening towards a larger conversation. So, you know, the easiest way to dismiss these people is by calling them Crazy and irrational and whatever, but that still leaves us with the problem of dealing with a constituency which is unhappy and which is bent on destroying a certain way of life in America. I think the harder but the more productive way is to try to understand it, but then approach it with a certain degree of humility, with some compassion, and maybe find a few people in your own community or elsewhere who might be willing to talk to you about it. We still may disagree, but at least in the process of our conversation, in exchange of those words, we will learn that they are equally as human as we are. And they will learn that we are not such terrible people either. So these are some of my impractical thoughts today on my birthday. I thought I should share them. I hope these are useful to you. These are not very well thought out, planned thoughts. Of course, this is what is in my mind, and I'm trying to capture it and express it as freely as possible. Let me know what you think about it. But other than that, I hope you're having a wonderful day. I hope you're taking care of yourself. I hope you're also taking care of others around you. Stay safe, take care. And as always, I'll see you next time. Till then, peace and love.